of the things. We are interrupting our ongoing argument about uh, epistemology and objective truth in order to record this podcast. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Chronically Narnia. There's a colon in there. This is a podcast in which my co-host and I discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter. In this moment, we are discussing chapter 8 of The Horse and His Boy, titled In the House of the Tisrock. Mm. I am your host, well, one of them. I'm a false jade also known as Kristen, and this is my co-host. I'm an old babbler. Also known as... Chris. Chris. Uh-huh. Audience. Welcome. So, Chris, tell us about the chapter in the House of the Tisrock, oh, false babbler. Oh, we're just jumping in, aren't we? I don't know. You, I called you a false babbler. I conflated yeah, yeah. our two mm-hmm, titles. Yeah. The sl- false babbler and I'm an old jade. Yep. That's uh, that's our marriage in a nutshell, right there. <laughs> <laughs> We're practicing being an old married couple several decades too early. Um, so before we talk about the chapter, would you would you like to go in and do our summary so we get have an idea of what this chapter is all about? I suppose that is the generally accepted standard of uh, communication that, that we've established in this podcast. It's also the structure of the podcast, you know. Whatever. That's what I said. If we ruin the structure, like. All of our listeners are going to abandon us. I mean, Nathan will wonder if we're okay. Yeah, he always does anyway. Yeah, well, that's because he's a good friend. <laughs> As opposed to who? Who are our bad friends that listen to this well, show? Well, let's talk about them. Today on In the House of the Tiss Rock, may hey. he live forever. Hi, Joe. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. We're a, not doing this. No, it was a joke. <laughs> Stop it. It was a um, joke. Anyway. His wife listens. Yep. Anywho, let's go ahead and jump into our uh, summary of this chapter. So That's a thing that we do. As we're reading the chapter, in yep. this case, chapter eight of The Horse and His Boy in the House of the Tisrock, we will select five sentences from the chapter in an attempt to summarize the plot of the chapter. And um, using the chapter's own words, we try to summarize it with five sentences from the chapter. So... In this case, Chris, why don't you go ahead and uh, go first? All right. I'll go ahead and do it. Um, you so do that. Mine is long. So because all of the sentences in this chapter are very long sentences, we'll get it. We'll get there. We'll cover this. Like You say that, and this is probably one of my shortest summaries. Man, how did you pull that off? <laughs> because like my rewrite, especially for this chapter, was rough, but we'll cover that later. That's how long my rewrite is. Man. Mine, I mean, mine is short, much shorter than my summary, but let's go ahead and do the summary. That's how long my summary is. All right. So here's my... That's how my, long mine my is. My summary is shorter than it usually is. All right. So here's mine. I must have the barbarian queen. I desire and propose, on my father, said Rabidash, that you immediately call out your invincible armies and invade their thrice accursed land of narnia and waste it with fire and sword and add it to your illimitable empire killing their high king and all of his blood except for the queen susan and lastly O oh my resourceful son said the tisrock you have made it clear how all this might give you the barbarian woman but not how it helps me to the overthrowing of narnia and if either in success or failure you shed a drop more than you need of Narnian noble blood, and open war arises from it. My favor shall never fall upon you again, and your next brother shall have your place in Calerman. But at last, with a great creaking and sighing, he heaved up his enormous body, signed for the slaves to proceed with the lights, and went out. All right, all right, all right. Mm-hmm. Just some good sentences. You got some good intrigue going on in there. Mm-hmm. Here's mine. If you had given me the swiftest of the galleys at sunrise when I first saw that the ship of the accursed barbarians was gone from her place, I would perhaps have overtaken them. Understand, O oh my son, said the Tisrock, 
that no words you can speak will move me to open war against Narnia. They are at peace with us and unprepared, and I shall take Anvard before they have bestirred themselves. Then I will ride through the pass above Anvard and down through Narnia to Care Paravel. He has gone without my consent, and I know not whither, because of his violence and the rash and disobedient disposition of youth. Cool. All right. We didn't choose a single sentence in Tommen that time. That was surprising. Mm, didn't surprise me. No, really? Yeah. Oh. Okay. Um, but so, you have an expression in yours, the thrice accursed land. Yep. I liked that. I don't remember reading that sentence, but I liked what I liked it. I feel like you gotta throw this the other syllable in the curse there. Like the thrice accursed land. Just has a uh, weight cursed. to it. Yeah. So let's jump into this chapter, Kristen. And this is a chapter in which uh none of our main characters are a thing at all. Like we have this is observation entirely from Erevis as she hides behind the divan that so, the Tis Rock is sitting on. So this is evidence that, like, the fact that this chapter exists is evidence, therefore, that the story is not just about four people. I'm including two horses in that. It is not just about our four named main characters trying to get to Narnia anymore. Yes. This is now about political intrigue and the way that they've found themselves in a situation where they have information about how to get to out of Kellerman and into Arkenland and also how they now have information that Arkenland is going to need a warning of an impending attack. Yeah. They have become people who have a moral obligation maybe to try to defend Arkenland from an unseen attack from Kellerman. And we've tied it back to the Pevensies. Yes, and we have tied it back to the Pevensies. Now, if we read this book independent of any of the other books, as mm -hmm. Steve, our guest on the podcast, mentioned, this was his introduction to Narnia, mm -hmm. was that one of his teachers had read this book to his class, and it, this was his first introduction to Narnia. Yeah. I feel like this book puts a lot of emphasis on this kind of political intrigue yeah. that's occurring here and unfolding in front of these children who are characters that are being swept along by this political intrigue and are now in a position where they are going to be somewhere that is either going to be in the middle of being attacked or that they are going to get there just ahead of an attack. Mm -hmm. Like, they are now in a position of, of political influence in a way that they shouldn't be as to, like, a runaway and a, like, a runaway slave and a runaway bride. Uh-huh. If you've ever seen that movie. Anyway. Uh, yes, I have. I uh, feel like you're just not engaged, and we should try this later. No, I'm I'm engaged right now. It's just I'm trying to think of where. No, to... you're married. Also engaged. Um, no. Um, to whom? You have a you have a sharp object in your hands. So I won't make that joke. <laughs> um, no, I'm just trying to think of where we're going next with this because, like, this was a hard chapter to come up with discussion points about because of that because like we've abandoned the main characters pretty much we have just this story going on even in the previous chapter where we had uh shasta in the room with the narnians which i guess it's kind of an echo of that because like you know both shasta and erevis end up in situations where they're overhearing a conversation that doesn't concern them uh with a group that centers around the drama and intrigue behind like the narnian uh calamine conflict conflict and like this doesn't matter to them and like it, it it in i guess the 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 very real immediate sense maybe it matters in the fact that this is like a greater metaphor for like the you know the conflict they experience as characters because like we have shasta who is the narnian and we have erevis who is the kalerman and like the tension between them is you know an echo of the tension between these two nations and like this is a you know this is a story within a story type situation it is definitely yeah if we're going to talk about political intrigue though i have a sentence i wanted to read and just see your thoughts on uh-huh i wrote in the margin of my book imperialism at its finest so i'm just gonna put that out there before i read this 
Most undoubtedly, said the Tisrock, these little barbarian countries that call themselves free, which is as much as you say idle, disorderly, and unprofitable, are hateful to the gods and to all persons of discernment. Mm-hmm. Then why have we suffered such a land as Narnia to remain thus long unsubdued? Yeah. Because um, I yeah. took this very much to be like this kind of idea of not not saying, hey, Narnia is the free country. Narnia is considering themselves free in this American sense of freedom. But taking this very much to be like imperialism and saying like, I mean, like, I know we've talked about how Narnia is, like, an analog for Britain. Mm-hmm. And, but there's this just general lack, like, this is Calamine being portrayed in this imperialistic sense of, like, subduing this free nation of Narnia. And, like, who are the Calamines in this analogy if we're talking about, like, Narnia being Britain? Yeah, I mean, part of it, I I don't want to get too deep into it because, like, I don't want to talk about all the racial subtext here because I'm going to do it in an ignorant way. Okay. Um, however, a lot of this, I feel like, um, I mean, we know C.S. Lewis was a huge fan of history. Like, he is, you know, that is what he's known for in Britain. He's a historian. Like, he's real, real, real into certain areas of history. And he's very learned. And... This could be uh, referenced or inspired by, you know, basically the events leading up to the Crusades. Because the world situation around that time was, uh, I won't say very similar, but there was very much this idea in, you know, that era of Europe, uh, in like, you know, pre-Renaissance Europe, that uh this the the middle eastern like cabal like the middle east and the muslim nations who at the time were basically like the center of power and learning and science in the world mm-hmm. like there it was like that was you know the center of everything and civilization stemmed from the middle east and there was this fear that they were expanding and expanding and expanding and, you know, because of, you know, whatever Islamic edict that they wanted to expand and spread the word of their God and their religion, that, you know, the Christian nations of the North and Europe were terrified and being like, if we don't do anything, they're just going to expand and, you know, take over everything and everything that's our culture is going to be absorbed into theirs. So you're you're saying, I, I, I don't want to misinterpret what you're saying. Yeah. You're saying that... C.S., what I'm reading it as, you're saying C.S. Lewis is putting the Calarmine people yeah. as, like, Salah Hadin's forces in the Crusades yeah. who are fighting for, you know, control over the Holy Land in Jerusalem. Yeah. And also attempting to conquest Narnia, which is Britain. Yeah, um, and so, like, that's, you know, kind of the, the the thing where history gets fuzzy is because, like, history is obviously written by the victors, and there's different accounts of this whole thing happening. But from the European side of things during this whole period, there's this idea of, you know, kind of like what happened after 9-11, where, like, where are the Muslims? They're going to come and take over. And there's oh, this we very... Well, but, like, we're also seeing it from the Calarmine perspective. Yeah. Where they're like, oh, these people who say that they're free, and that is, to say, idle and disordered. Yeah. So this is, like, this is saying, hey, these people consider us barbarians and Narnia. Yeah. And anyway, so there's this whole thing where both sides are seeing each other as the enemy and the barbarians and the monster outside the gates. And... You know, the maybe less so from the Narnians at this point in time. However, there is still a fear there as we experience in the conversation that Shasta overhears yeah. because they're very much like, you know, they're going to trap us. They're going to kill us. Like, you know, these people aren't civilized. They're going to take what they want, uh, which I guess in this setting, maybe there's some truth to that because Rabidash is here having this conversation saying, I'm going to take what I want. And yeah, I want I'm- you to mobilize your entire army to take over this land because I want this woman. One of Rabidash's first first sentences that yeah. I wrote down is, but I want her, mm-hmm. cried the prince. I must have her. 
I shall (laughs) die if I do not get her. False, proud, black-hearted daughter of a dog that she is. (sighs) Yep. Why do you want her? Mm -hmm. If this is how you see her, why do you want her? Well, she's a false jade. And I and I was also going to get into this and and being like like this is a thing that's really hard to understand from a modern perspective and like especially a modern western perspective. Uh but really anywhere right now is like you know this idea of you know basically the women being trophies. Mm. And like that's a prize to be won. I'm sorry. And like it's such a <laughs> No, and it's such a foreign idea, like, to me as a modern American man, like, this idea of just taking a woman that you want, even though she doesn't want to be with you. To me, those are two ideas that aren't, aren't you, aren't, um, mutually exclusive, like, they aren't mutually exclusive. Yeah. Is that what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Where, like, it's not just that it's a woman who doesn't want to be with you and also a, a trophy, like men can see their woman as a trophy that they won because they won her over and she decided to be with them or because God blessed them with her. Yeah. Like, there is there is an amount of this where he's saying, like, I want her because she is a prize mm-hmm. and also I want her because she doesn't have any say in the matter and it doesn't matter. So, like, what he's saying agrees with what you're saying. Yeah. But I would say that, like, these ideas aren't mutually exclusive, and I've seen elements of both of those in the world today in Western culture. Yeah. And it's just, I feel like it's such a, I don't know, uh, a different idea of what privilege is and what, like, manliness is, because I feel like in, you know, most, like, modern cultures now, like, the idea of, of, you know, heterosexual manliness stems from this thing of like women wanting you like if women are falling all over themselves to be with you like you're a real man like that's you're that's what you want to be like that that's i wouldn't the, know so tell me more <laughs> and, and like that's the ideal and so like it, it's very much this position of power and you know being put on a pedestal if women are just like fighting to get you rather than you know you're just being like no i'm taking this woman who doesn't want me by force like, that's such a foreign idea in Western society that it's hard to, like, identify with that. Okay, yeah, I see that. But also, like, you do have examples, and, and like, obviously not ideals or venerable examples, but you have examples of people who have committed this kind of what is considered a crime of taking a woman against her will. And... I mean, like, this is this is beyond the scope of the podcast and not something that I want to engage with in the podcast. But, like, you have examples of this in Western culture where you still have this argument of defense that says, like, oh, well, the, the victim is to blame in this situation. And so, I mean, like, yes, what you're saying is true. It's not the honorable thing. The honorable thing is to be the man's man that all the women are fawning over. But... There is also an argument that that says, like, the man can't be in the wrong because the woman did something that made it apparent she wanted this man. Yeah. Because if she did anything that implies she wanted the man, then he has a right to do something about it, to take her in that way. And so, like, this this is skirting a much deeper and more intense topic than I want to engage in on the topic. Uh, on the podcast Mm -hmm. at all like I don't want to get into that right now so but like we have this presentation of Prince Rabbit Ash saying I want her I don't care that she's false proud and black-hearted and the daughter of a dog like these are all he just wants her yeah he also calls her a false jade which means that regardless of whether or not she is beautiful she is not intrinsically beautiful so he is given no reason whatsoever why he wants her, except that he wants her. Yeah. And it doesn't make any sense at all. Like, he is willing to take his father's army yeah. to war against two other kingdoms yeah. in order to gain someone that he knows doesn't want him, and he has nothing to say positive about her at all. She is the one that said no. And he just wants her because she said no. Yep. 
You always want what you can't have. Um, How do so, we get from the Crusades to this? <laughs> like, so let's talk a little bit about the relationship between. You're the like we're not going to have anything to talk about on this podcast because nothing happens in this chapter that actually affects our main characters. Yeah, uh, but like. Golly gee, how'd we get this deep already? <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the relationships between the characters here, uh, which I think is worth noting and, and discussing a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah. So we have three characters in this chapter because Erebus and, you know, Erebus doesn't count and Lasarlene especially doesn't count. Um, she, her name isn't even mentioned here. But we have the three characters of Prince Rabidash. We have the Tisrock, whose real name we still don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have... Uh, Ahosh- forever. Yeah. And Ahoshta. Uh, Ahoshta. Okay, that there's one. a K in it? No, I said a Hoshta, I think. Okay. Um, which was obviously Erevis's betrothed before she ran away. And these are the three people in the room. And the, here, here, the power dynamic here is is interesting because like... Before you talk about the power dynamic, yeah, you're talking just about the conversation between the three of them. I got excited because I thought you were talking about Erevis being in the room while this is happening because... Erevis is privy to this conversation. Well, she is a main character, so maybe she's more important to talk about. Watching Prince Rabidash say all of these things about the woman that he wants Mm -hmm. while she is running away from another person in this room. She is running away from Ahoshka. Yeah. Ahoshta. Like, the Grand Vizier. I'm just going to call him that because yeah. I don't know what his name is. Uh-huh. She is running away from the Grand Vizier, who is the person she is promised to be married to. Yes. Who is going to be talking about her in this way if she is married to him. Like, she is sitting here observing. Like, in the previous chapter, we had presented to her all of the all of the good things that she was giving up by going to Narnia. Mm-hmm. And now we have her presented with the other side of that. Mm-hmm. All of all of the negativity, all of the bad things, everything that the Grand Vizier would be saying about her behind her back mm-hmm. in the form of Rabidash. Yeah. Being like, she's she's proud and false and black-hearted and the daughter of a dog. Mm-hmm. All of these things could be the Grand Vizier talking about Erebus. Yeah. Where he's saying... No, she's false, and she's proud, and she's black-hearted, and she's the daughter of a dog. Mm-hmm. Like, we're talking about the Grand Vizier here talking about a Tarquina's daughter. Like, we're talking about a prince talking about a queen. Mm-hmm. Someone who would have authority over him if he was in her kingdom. Yeah. Like, so, I, I know that you want to talk about the three men having the conversation, but I want to talk about, you know, like, the woman who's observing this. Mm-hmm. Like, we have two women observing this conversation, only one of which we're engaging with at the moment. But yeah. um, Lasaraline is a woman in subjection to a man. Mm-hmm. And Erebus, who is escaping subjection to a man. Yeah. And Lasaraline is trying to convince Erebus to stay and accept the Grand Vizier. Yeah. And Erevis is sitting there, like, now observing the Grand Vizier. Yeah. Plotting treachery and ignoble behavior. Yeah, just a devil's advocate really quick. Is Lasaraline subjected to a man? Because it seems like, from what we've seen of her character so far, she does whatever she wants. True. That's so, No, that's absolutely fair. Yeah. So, maybe that's passing too much judgment on this society as a whole. When we, you know, the the only thing we really know from a woman's perspective in the society is what Erevis has talked about. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how typical that is. But, like, of the woman who is married in the society that we've seen, it seems like she has a lot of freedom. So, I mean, I don't disagree with you. I'm, yeah. I'm judging this based on Erevis's perception of what it means to be married to Ahoshta. Yeah. yeah. So, no, I, I'm definitely making a generalization. Thank you for calling me out on that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have Lasarlene as an example of someone who is in a position of, of excess. Mm-hmm. And she's, yeah, she's very much getting what she wants out of life. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you know, getting to be known as something of a, a jokester and a prankster. Yeah. Um, but also someone who is in absolute fear for her life, getting caught in the wrong room at the wrong time, 
in an area that she claims that she is free to be. Which, I mean, given this chapter makes sense because, like... But, but, I mean, like, she claims she's free to go into the palace and she can get... She's saying, oh, yeah, no, I can get you to the garden and can get you to the water door and I can get you out. No yeah. problem. There's no issues. I'm I'm welcome there. Yeah. But she is absolutely terrified that she might... Like, she couldn't... If she actually was free to be walking around, it wouldn't be any problem for her to accidentally be in the same hallway as the Tisrock. She would just have to show the respect necessary and stop and bow down before him as he walked by and he wouldn't notice yeah. or pay any attention yeah. if this was acceptable behavior. Yeah. But she's clearly in fear for her life hiding to the to the detriment of of her friend's ability to hide. Mm-hmm. She's kept Erebus from being hidden behind the couch. Yeah. Like... She is so afraid for her own life. She doesn't care about the fact that if her friend is caught, she'll also get caught. Yeah. Like, being in a place that she claims that she's welcome. Yeah. So how much has she deceived herself into thinking that she is welcome? That she does have this happiness and, and great life that she thinks she has. She seems very self-deceived based on that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's part of where my judgment comes from on that. Yeah. Um, that being said, I mean, the Tisrock's a scary dude. Like, we established that in this chapter. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and... Oh, yeah. Since, you know, since apparently we have a lot to talk about, uh, is there something more you wanted to say, or do you want to get into the, uh, the relationship between these characters? No, 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 you can talk about the three men. Um, you know, the... F- Sorry, I'm not even going to make a joke there. The father, the son, and the uh, grand vizier. Uh-huh. <laughs> So we have the Tisrock, we have Press Rabidash, and we have the Grand Vizier. Um, and there's a weird, like, triangle of, not triangle, pyramid, I guess, of subservience that's happening here. Because, like, Prince Rabidash is, like, showing deference and showing respect to the Tisrock, even though he d- really doesn't want to. Like, yes. it's obvious that he is getting too big for his britches, to use his southern expression. Um, he's, you know, getting uppity. The Tisrock even says this later when he's out of the room, like, mm-hmm. you know, five... It would be for the best if he does die. Yeah, like five Tarkans have been murdered by Tisrocks. their sons. Tisrocks. Yeah, five Tisrocks have been murdered by their... No, Tisrock, yeah. He, yeah. he is the Tisrock. Yeah, he says five previous Tisrocks oh, have I been murdered by their sons no. who w- couldn't wait to become the new Tisrock. No, I thought he was talking about other lords in the mm-hmm. area. No. Um. Yeah, so it's like, this is a thing... Where, like, the oldest son, like, gets kind of uppity and he's like, I want the throne already. Let's get this old man out of the way. And there's this whole, obviously this whole cult of personality that's going around the Kisrock. Like, we've seen this before in the previous chapters where it's like, oh, when we speak of him, we have to say, may he live forever. Yeah. And this whole kind of thing. We also have a moment in the chapter where um, Rabidash says, oh, like, yeah, King Peter won't come down and try to rescue Susan because... His nephew or grandnephew might sit on the throne of Kellerman. And the Tisrock is like, basically like, you don't believe that if I, if you actually do, as you say, wish that I'll live forever, yeah. you won't see yourself, your son or your grandson sit on the throne. Yeah. And it's he just, and calls it's just, him out for it. And it's just like, you said, may I live forever. Don't sit here and be like, your son might be on this throne. Yeah. And it's this very weird thing where it's like, it's very much weird. Where for like us. Ra- Rabidash is Rabidash is like aware, and he's like, "Yeah, Tizrock ain't gonna live forever. Tizrock knows he ain't gonna live forever." But we're gonna like, hold this whole. I- we're gonna hold this whole idea of he's gonna live forever. Yeah, and like Tizrock is even like, "Yeah, five previous Tizrocks have been murdered by their sons." Yeah, like he's very aware that he's gonna die at some point. Like, and, he- and he's just like, "Oh yeah, I've got seventeen other sons." Like, mm-hmm. dude has a lot of kids. Yep. And so, you know, whatever. If he dies, it's fine. I have 17 other sons to choose from to carry on my legacy. But he's going to live forever. Yeah. And it's this whole, like, like, this very strange thing of, like, I know it's BS and you know it's BS, but we're going to say it anyway because, like, that's what you do. But we're also going to, like, call it, like, the Tisrock calls Rabidash out for it and what I referenced earlier where he's just, like, 
no, you, your son and your grandson aren't going to sit on this throne if you truly believe I'm going to live forever yeah. the way you said. And, like, how much of that is for appearances and how much of that is just deep dysfunction? Um, yeah, but we, so we have... Because you the, can't train a son to be a good king if you truly believe and, and, and have to argue, like, that you aren't... That he's never going to be king because you're going to continue to be king forever. Yeah. Anyway, relationship between these two is obviously intense. What about the Grand Vizier so, in here? So, yeah, like, the Tizrock is in some level afraid of Rabidash. Rabidash uh, is afraid of the Tizrock and showing deference and also wants to depose him, mm-hmm. like, very obviously. And Vizier is just like, hey, yeah, gotta respect the Tizrock. I'm not gonna say his son's an idiot because, like, he'll kill me if I do that. However, I'm gonna make it clear that I know his son's an idiot. Yeah, we also, though, have <sighs> Rabidash beating up the Grand Vizier on multiple occasions. He hits him, strikes him, kicks him. And the Tizrock tells him not to. And the Tizrock does tell him not to, but also tells the Grand Vizier, it would be wise of you not to stop talking when he hits you because it would be proof of your quality. Yeah. Basically being like, if you don't get interrupted by this, then that means that you're better at your job. Yeah. Um. So, but we also have like the Grand Vizier when he says this is a mad attempt, and the prince hits him for saying that he's being mad, yeah. that he's being crazy in his attempt. But also the Grand Vizier is saying, you know, totally feasible plan. Yeah. He can go do it. He can accomplish this. Yeah. So let's. I mean, let's talk a little bit about the plan here. Um, basically, Rabidash has, has come up with a way to turn his little selfish fantasy of wanting this woman into something that's remotely appealing to his father, the Tizrock. Well, it's like, yeah. Tizrock doesn't give a crap if Rabidash has the queen or not. Like, he's no, just like, he whatever. He doesn't care but, about his impulsive youth. Yeah. But he does, and he won't, like I said in my one of my sentences, like, Understand, oh my son, said the Tisrock, that no words you can speak will move me into open war against Narnia. Uh-huh. So Rabidash is sitting here saying, all right, here's the plan. I'm going to go take uh-huh. some armies, take some of my army, go take over the capital of Arkenland, and go from there into Narnia. And in two days' time, I'll be at Caraparavel. I will beat them there before they get there in their ship. And I'll be waiting for them at the docks. And at that point, I will capture and bring back Susan. And I will have her as my own. Mm-hmm. And what? you, Otis Rock, can deny any knowledge of this. And this is how you can benefit from me taking over Arkenland. You can expand into Arkenland if I'm successful. And if I fail... You can just say it's the impulsiveness of youth and I had no knowledge of it and you are not in any way responsible for it. Which, for many reasons, this is a terrible plan. Like, this this falls apart in a lot of ways. And, like, my my first thought was this. And just, like, he's just like, yeah, I'm going to go into Arkenland. Like, they, they think we're allies. We're fine. I'm going to go in there, take over the palace. Before you know it, I'm going to be in Narnia, like, in and out. Not going to be an issue. And, like, they're, they're, they're allied countries, uh, Arkenland and Arnia, and they're bordered. And so here's my analogy to, like, you know, give an idea of just how ridiculous this plan is. Let's say, you know, there's a country that's, you know, not on the friendliest terms with America. Let's, you know... Let's call it France. Let's <laughs> Sure, let's call it France so we don't offend anybody. Because um, <laughs> we don't have any French listeners. Um, let's call it France. Let's say France and America are like at a state of basically, you know, a cold war. And oh, sorry, Russia. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. France works here because France is just like, hey, we're we're like real tight buddies with Canada because like Quebec is basically like France Junior. So what we're gonna do here, <laughs> what we're gonna do is like, we're gonna take a French delegation and we're just gonna take. I know, I'm just gonna be one guy. I'm gonna take like. A single battalion of troops with me and we're gonna go soldiers we're gonna go hang out in quebec and we're gonna like we're just gonna we're just gonna chill out in the capital and we're gonna take over and then like then we're just gonna slide right into america through quebec and they're not gonna know anything we're gonna and, go like, into dc and like 
they're like you have allied nations here who share a border like you're assuming america has no idea this happened like you're, you're assuming that narnia is not going to have any idea oh yeah 200 freaking soldiers just came into arkenland i appreciate your analogy however <laughs> we're also talking about an expansive empire of uh, Kalerman. yeah a small nation of arkenland mm-hmm. and a tiny nation of narnia yeah narnia is very small yeah Arkenland is also very small. Mm-hmm. And other than at sea, where they're about equivalent, Kellerman mm-hmm. is very much capable of just overrunning both of these nations. And it is the desert that has defended them more so than their own forces. Yeah. Like, it is a natural barrier yeah. between them. Yeah. So it's not like France and America with Canada. It's like a lot of smaller countries that you're talking about here like this is this is a very different kind of structure now yes this idea of all of these different alliances between them yes of course but also rabidash is suggesting taking two days to get to narnia Uh uh-huh he's saying i'll be in arkenland tomorrow and have victory there and i'll be in care paravel the next morning yeah like he is talking about taking two days to get there. Which again, like as this opposed is... to an act, like there is no opportunity for someone to outrun him and get to Narnia and warn them ahead of time. Yeah, and completely beside the point. But this is calling back to an early chapter where I was just like, they talk about this expansive desert between Kalerman and like the North being like this huge barrier. However. Like, he's talking about getting from Tashban into Narnia in two days on horseback. And, like... Yeah, but horse- also, like, when you look at this map... Yeah. This is five minutes distance right here. Yeah. Th- from from yeah. Tashban to the tombs. Yeah. Like, like it's if not that's a- only five minutes, this is only yeah. a one-day journey yeah, across this desert. desert. It's not. Yeah. It's like when you're, like, when you're talking about, like, America, because, you know, we're America-centric here on this podcast... Uh, like before the days of of rail or anything, like your the you know the journey from the east coast to the west coast on horseback horseback is a weeks long journey. Yeah, like as that's opposed a, to now when it's a six hour journey on yeah, an airplane. Yeah, you're talking about weeks of like an intense thing where like you have to deal with sickness and like supplies and people going to die. Like you've played the Oregon Trail, like you know what I'm talking about. Like you've this died is a, of dysentery. Yes, this is a whole epic thing. And they were talking about yeah, we'll cross the desert in a day. Like, it's a tiny little desert that's basically being, like, you know, the the stretch of California between L.A. and, you know, Barstow. Like, that's that's what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just not that big. Could you make that in horseback in a day? That's I don't think so. <laughs> like, even smaller than that, if you're, if you're a Southern California native. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know. No, I'm, I like it makes the world feel very small. It does make the world feel very small. <laughs> uh-huh. It does absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, um, we also have this kind of idea where we've shrunk Narnia down. Like as you're saying, it makes the world feel very small. But like mm-hmm. up to this point, Narnia has felt very big, and Narnia is a very small little nation. Uh huh. And in the same way that we've had some references before to Narnia being an an analog for England. England is a very small country Mm -hmm. that has had this empire across, you know, where the sun didn't set on the British Empire and things like that. Yeah. But, like, Narnia's never had that. Narnia's never been that. Mm -hmm. Narnia's always been this tiny little nation with these four, you know, these two kings and these two queens. Yeah. Which, fun fact that I'll interject with. Uh, because of territories that England still controls in the Pacific, the sun has still never set on the British Empire to this day. That's not... No. I gotta look that up. Okay. You can look it up. Not right now. These are facts. But I'm upset. (laughs) Um, Anyway. So, your interjection aside, Mm -hmm. um, we have this tiny little nation that has been kind of like we are free and we are Narnia and we're not, you know, but also like, 
this is a completely different take on them from the outside. Yeah. And we're seeing it from the Calarmine perspective of this tiny little free idol nation up there, these barbarians. Mm-hmm. And they're referred to as barbarians multiple times in this chapter. Yes. As the barbarian queen and the barbarian king. Yeah. Multiple times. And so it's this very heavily influenced idea of like almost tribal, like we are the Calarmine Empire and we are going to subject the Arkenlanders and those free Narnians up there. Yeah. Well, we've established also that despite them being like looked at as barbarians and like this tiny nation, like the Tizrog is afraid of Narnia. Yeah, like he, he's very much. But we like, also in this chapter have established that a lot of that has to do with this magic idea, mm-hmm. where um, the the Tisrock is basically like, oh yeah, or the uh, Grand Vizier is like, it used to be this country that was all snowy and um, cons- and ruled by this sorceress. Um, here we go. This I know very well, O Lucius Vizier answered the prince. But I know also that the Enchantress is dead, and the ice and snow have vanished, so that Narnia is now wholesome, fruitful, and delicious. So Narnia up to this point has almost been protected by from Calarmine by the witch and yeah. her existence. And so, um, and this change, O most learned prince, has doubtless been brought to pass by the powerful incantations of those wicked persons who now call themselves kings and queens of Narnia. Mm -hmm. So this is the Grand Vizier arguing and saying, hey, clearly these kings and queens are powerful enough to have overthrown this enchantress and taken this from a barren forever winter land Uh to being a profitable place with all of this, you know, with with being wholesome and fruitful and delicious. Yeah. And then we have Rabidash here, and this is the sentence. I wrote a big X next to this one in the book because I wanted to bring it up. I'm rather of the opinion, said Rabidash, that it has come about by the alteration of the stars and the operation of natural causes. It's climate change, bro. So we... (laughs) It's climate change. So we have an argument between this idea, this fear of the kings and queens of Narnia Mm-hmm. who have come into their authority after the empress or the the enchantress was overthrown, after Queen Jadis was overthrown, uh-huh. after the white witch was overthrown. Uh-huh. They've come into power and they've inherited this kind of respect as being the ones who overthrew her. Yeah. And Rabidash is sitting there being like, no, I don't think it had anything to do with them. I think the witch was overthrown by other means, and I think that it's entirely natural. Then the Tisrock argues that the high king of Narnia, whom may the gods utterly object, is supported by a demon of hideous aspect and irresistible malfeasance whose appearance is the shape of a lion. Uh-huh. What a way to describe Aslan. Uh-huh. What a way to describe Aslan. So we have rumors of Aslan's existence extending all the way to Kellermine. So there is this inherent fear of these barbarian kings of the north uh-huh. that has to do both with this enchantress and the rumors of Narnia uh-huh. and also this idea of this demon ally of theirs who is monstrous and a lion and Aslan. Yeah. Yeah. That's a thing. Because we have this idea of Narnia, like you said that Narnia was kind of perceived as this kind of weak force above them. Yeah. But then also there is this mythos surrounding Narnia within Calarban that it is this kind of enchanted land ruled by an enchantress and now kings and queens who've overthrown her who may be in league with some demon. So there's... All of this, you know, and so we've got an argument here between the Tisrock and Rabidash as to whether or not this country is worth exerting effort towards because the Tisrock is tradition and says, oh, there is a god or a demon or a magic force that's protecting that land, which we know is true within Narnia. Mm-hmm. And Rabidash is saying, no, these kings and queens came to power through natural means and some natural change and therefore 
It is entirely accessible and possible for us to go and take over it without any influence of magic. Yeah. And while we're sitting here watching two children get all of the pieces of the puzzle necessary to protect Narnia under the guidance of a lion. Yeah. And now we know why the lion, Aslan, forced the two horses together at the river. Because otherwise, we wouldn't have gotten this side of the story. We wouldn't have gotten this information. We would only have gotten Salopad's story about how to get to Narnia. Yeah. So, I mean, there's that. Uh, My question is, what has been the political situation in Kellerman for, like, you know, however long that, you know, the current political climate uh, or the current structure of Kellerman has been in operation? Because we have the Tisrop being like, no, we don't want to invade Narnia. Like, until recently, it was controlled by this powerful enchantress covered in ice and snow, et cetera, et cetera. Within Rabbit Ash's lifetime, reasonably. Yeah. However, you know, which had power over Narnia for 100 years. Like, if this is a lifetime appointment to Tisrock, we're talking, like, this Tisrock, the one before him, like... Maybe the, the one before him l- as well, l- like depending three, on how often they get killed. Yeah. Like, three Tisrocks back, Narnia was not in control by a, an enchantress. Like, that's not very long ago. And so there's this whole mythos in Kalerman of this place that's, like, covered in snow, controlled by a powerful enchantress. It hasn't been happening that long. Yeah, so the, the question in that <sighs> is... How how old is Kellerman? Yeah. Because it clearly has this legacy of having poets and all of these yeah. different things. But if Jadis was really only ruling Narnia for 100 years, mm-hmm. how far? Yeah. Because, I mean, like, even now, if we talk about my grandmother mm-hmm. was born in 1920. That was 100 years ago. Yeah. Like, last week would have been her 100th birthday if she was still alive. So your great-grandmother saw Narnia before the witch took over. Yeah, like, my great-grandmother <laughs> saw Narnia before the witch took over, absolutely. Yeah. But we're also talking about this being written right after World War II, mm-hmm. where, the world, where the world has now seen two world wars occur mm-hmm. within the lifetime of just the author of this book. Yeah. I mean... Not to mention the Spanish flu, the, 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 the pandemic, not to mention all of the economic troubles that happened, not to mention all of the changes in technology between World War One and World War Two in yeah. that mere 25 years worth of time. Yeah. Like 35 years or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we're talking about all of these, you know, the world was a completely completely different place over the course of just those 50 years. Uh-huh. So having this kind of mythos surrounding the German nation uh-huh. or the Japanese nation or all of these different people who became vilified by these world wars and conflicts uh-huh. on a global scale, we do have room to see like, hey, when I look at my grandmother who was born in a hundred years ago, mm-hmm. like I'm going to think a completely different thing about someone from, uh, you know, whether it's Germany or, or, and it's only a hundred years that we're talking about. So I don't know. I mean, I think that the human experience is so bait. Like, mm, I want to agree with you, but I'm also <laughs> trying to argue with you. So, like, I do agree with you where it's just like, this genuinely doesn't make sense for them to fear, but they also just fear this idea of magic. And I think yeah. that's what I'm trying to get to the core of is just, golly gee, can we yeah. back this up a minute? I, I, I feel like next week we need to get more into this idea of Kellerman and their idea on magic because we, we're running out of time and we need to wrap up the podcast. No, because I have at least 10 minutes worth of stuff I'm cutting out, Chris. Like... <laughs> You need to calm down. Okay. Okay, so yes, I agree with you that it's kind of weird that this is only 100 years worth of time that's passing, like that the witches, and like even you and I had questions about this when we were reading The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We're like, how long has this winter been? And it's only through external research that we've come to decide that it was only 100 years. Uh Uh-huh. Because like... Even my just observing it, I feel like this was much more than 100 years. When we talk about the books in Tumnus's house, about whether or not man is a myth, 
Yeah. It has to have been more than 100 years. Also, books in Tumnus's house ain't as man a myth. When humans, question mark, live in Kellerman? In yeah. Arkenland? In Arkenland. Like, right across the border. And they become allies with Narnia. So, like... Are Canadians a myth? Are Canadians a myth? <laughs> like, this is what I need to know, Chris. I need to know. Are Canadians real? <laughs> I've been to Canada, I think. <laughs> But, um... No, that's just North, North Michigan. North, North Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I want, I, I, like, I want the mythology of Narnia to be longer standing. Because we have five previous Tisrocks. Mm-hmm. So the history of Kellerman goes way beyond the history of the creation of Narnia. Well, no, because... We have, uh, before the 100-year reign of the White Witch, we, I believe we established in an earlier episode that... Uh, How Nar- long was the tree supposed to protect them from the witch coming uh, in? Like 1,000 years. Was it 1,000? Yes. yes. So that was roughly 900 to 1,000 years that the tree stood before the 100-year reign of the witch. So the creation of Narnia at this point in the story happened over 1,000 years ago. Okay, okay, okay. So, because we have at least five previous Tisrocks specifically mentioned in this, yeah. plus the current Tisrock, and there's obviously been intrigue and, and mal, malcontent with the children who have killed previous Tisrocks and things. Yeah. But, like, how long was Narnia under the influence of the witch? Because if our research outside of the books suggests that it was only 100 years... Why are they so terrified of Narnia? Like, That's my question. Was it just the wild wastes of the north beyond the desert that they didn't care about? And when they did care about it, it was under control of the witch. So it became this great myth. Yeah. Or is it actually something that like, I, I just, I genuinely don't know. Was the tree <sighs> protecting Narnia in a mythological way from the Calermine people before the witch came there? And so there's just been this magic. Or is that why Aslan let the witch take power in the first place? To protect Narnia from mm-hmm. the Kellermans until the Pevensies could take over? Yeah. Why couldn't the tree protect them? Like, <laughs> I just, I don't like that. I don't like that because that is an argument that the suffering of the Narnians was, like, ultimately the will of Aslan. And that that's, that's a theology I don't <laughs> abide. Like, that's a theology that I don't stand by that says that, like... This god figure willed this suffering upon his people in order to protect them. Uh huh. I, I don't. I mean, like, I know plenty of yeah. people who do withstand that kind of theology, yeah. but like, I can't separate it from theology at that point. Yeah. Like, I have to step away from it and be like, this is a fantasy story. Yeah. Better the devil, you know. <laughs> I uh, yeah, whatever. Okay, <sighs> you keep you keep talking. All right. Um, anyway, so we we need to get more into this next week. I think we'll we'll figure out what we're talking about in the next chapter. However, uh, anything that we didn't hit on in the chapter that we need to discuss before we move on to our next segment. Um, uh, we just have uh, this discussion of this plot to get to yeah. Narnia, and Erebus happens to be listening to it, and then everyone leaves the room. Yeah, other, that is the end of the chapter. Yeah, other than the fact that the Tizrock just completely disavows uh, Rabidash entirely. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. He tells the Grand Vizier, "You won't think about this conversation in your heart of hearts." Basically, you you don't remember this period. Yeah, yeah. you don't remember this. We're going to disavow knowledge of this. Like if he gets caught, then he was he's not my son. Like I didn't put him up to it because he just still really does not want to risk war here. Um. All right. So why don't we go ahead and go into our next segment, which is. Narnia chopped and screwed. This is our rewrite. As we're reading through the chapter, we select five sentences and attempt to write a new story um, from those sentences from the chapter. Um, Chris has been trying throughout this entire book to write a continuous story with his rewrites. Yeah. This one's been really hard for him because you have created two main characters in your story that are what you thought were the two main characters of this book, the horse and his boy. Yeah. Um, and neither of them have been in the last chapter or this yeah. chapter. Yeah, it's been rough. It's This one especially was very, very hard. So this one does not have any character names that are mentioned. All right. So when you read yours, you're going to read last week's five sentences and this week's five sentences, yeah. correct? Okay. So I'll go ahead and read mine first in that case. Okay. 
He had better cool his blood abroad than boil it in inaction here. But I know also that the enchantress is dead, for I see into the bottom of your mind. You shall say that I did it without your knowledge and against your will and without your blessing, being constrained by the violence of my love and the impetuosity of youth. The cool, placid voice in which he spoke these words made Erebus's blood run cold. Okay. So I felt like in this one it kind of implied that Rabidash was the one who killed the Enchantress, and that was kind of the idea that I was going for, where Erebus is observing a conversation about oh. the death of the Enchantress okay. at the hands of Rabidash. I see what you're doing there. Where where it's like, oh, he'd better cool his blood abroad than boil it in inaction here. But I know that the Enchantress is dead because I see into the bottom of your mind. Like, oh, I know that you have killed her. Fascinating. Oh, you'll say I did it without your knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel you. So, I don't know. I... I liked it because it was very intrigue. And for me, it kind of put Erebus in a position of seeing these men not just as, like, power players moving pawns around, but also as murderous and violent. Where Erebus is seeing these men of authority mm-hmm. as ones who would condone violence and lie. Yeah. Where we've taken this idea where oh, we had Shasta not understand the idea of noble people, of nobility in these leaders of Narnia. Yeah. And we have Erebus here observing the ignoble behaviors and the silent conferences, the secret conferences, rather, of the kings of the Calarmine, ready to plot betrayal and lie and say, oh, if you fail to take over Narnia our allies in in Arkenland, then I'll just say I never knew about it. It's this complete flipping on its head of the idea of the noble ruler and the noble man. Huh. So. Interesting. Go ahead and read yours, Chris. Yeah. Uh, no, I was, I was swept away in a world of fantasy <laughs> and intrigue there. Ooh. Um, so here's my last week's summary that we're going to play into, and I warned you this week. It was, a, it was a slog. Uh, but last week's here. And Erevis couldn't help looking up to see what Lasarlene looked like now that she was married and a very great person indeed. I hope no one heard you when you shouted out to me like that, said Erevis. They gave it up and lay still, panting a little. Is it safe, said Erevis at last in the tiniest possible whisper. It was fatal. And this week's. I must have her. The cool, placid voice in which he said these words made Erebus's blood run cold. You shall say that I did it without your knowledge and against your will and without your blessing, being constrained by the violence of my love and the impetuosity of youth. For I must have her as my wife, though... She shall learn a sharp lesson first. This very night and in this hour, I will take but 200 horse and ride across the desert. Okay. So you just really put a lot of what this chapter has to say into it, but changing up the the players a little bit. Yeah. Okay. I Mm -hmm. like it. I like it. We had two sentences in common and we created completely different stories. That's, yeah. Um, I like it. My my idea for the second one, and I, I I try not to like part the kimono too much. Uh, <laughs> just a thing that I've said before that really drives Kristen insane, does which is why I say it. <laughs> um, but what I in my sentence where I, I I use the cool placid voice in which he spoke these words made Erebus's blood run cold. My idea behind that was um, that Erebus was listening to a thing which. In, in my in my story, Erevis is male, gender swapped. Okay. Uh, Erevis is listening is listening to a thing which he said, which he was almost not aware of. Okay. And he just hears somebody say these words, and he is shocked by. Okay. Tone of it. Okay. So that's like that's kind of where I was going with that. Anyway, 
So my story of a bunch of love triangles, which are happening right now, that's slowly taking shape. Fascinating. All right, Chris. So at this point, you like to review uh, final thoughts and rate the chapter. So uh, I'd like to know your rating on this chapter from one to five parted kimonos. <laughs> no, that's not a thing in this chapter. <laughs> you give me a thing in the chapter. From one to five jewels on the Tiss Rocks outfit. Ooh, jewels on the Tiss Rocks robe. Um, I mean, this chapter is intriguing. Um, it's intriguing in the way that, you know, all of the Senate chamber scenes in The Phantom Menace are intriguing. We're like, sure, there's a story being told here and there's stuff that we're talking about, but does it matter to anybody else in the story or anybody that we care about? No. But we wouldn't not right have now. the memes. We wouldn't have the memes. I it's just am like, the Senate. And it's just like this whole thing where, like, I'm not saying George Lucas is the first person he did this. Obviously it's not. This was 50 years before Lucas did anything. Um, it's just, yeah, it's this idea where you're writing a children's book. You're writing a book for kids. You have the main characters, which are kids. You have Shasta and Erebus. They have a story. They have a hero's journey. And we're going to pause all that to have a political discussion about, you know, what Kallerman feels about invading Narnia, which, yes, there is a plot element there. Like, it's going to lead to more stuff. But at the same time, like, have you given the kids who are reading the book reason to care about any of this and i don't think he has if it's independent of the other stories i agree with you if it's not independent of the stories if you're reading this as part of the series then i absolutely think you have so much reason because these are kids who have engaged with susan and edmund yeah who have like witnessed these characters who've seen tumness in action like these are these are kids who are reading this book in the context of the stories yeah that exist around Narnia. Yeah, they want to know what happened when Susan and Peter and Edmund and Lucy were kings and queens in Narnia. Yeah. We don't have any image of that besides them canceling school. And then, and then yes, and then and then on the flip side of that, like let's say that says what it's about and that's what, you know, is the intrigue here and that's why we should care. We've completely superseded the story about Erebus and Shasta with the story of the Pevensies again. True. Like they've become the new main characters of this book. Mm. And like Shasta and Erebus are just like yesterday's leftovers. Like, that's. I mean, it's just like in The Magician's Nephew, yeah. where it was like, oh, yeah, you you don't actually care about Digger. You care about hearing about where the lamppost came from. Yeah, it's a thing where, like, you can't have a. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have it both ways. You can't have this book be a standalone thing with its own main characters and also bring in the main characters from the previous book to be a major plot point. Yeah. Like you, you know, it using the Star Wars analogy again, it's like if the original, tri- you know, the original trilogy talked a lot about this guy named Qui-Gon that was a really big deal like 20 years ago. Yeah. Like no, it's no, 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 I agree, I agree. But also you have this idea of kids who can't get to Narnia, mm-hmm. who want to get to Narnia. And you've given them a new like readers a new mm-hmm. way to engage with the idea of getting to Narnia. Yeah. And being able to be just kids who can still be involved in the royalty of Narnia, yeah. even though they're just kids. Yeah, I don't know. I guess, uh, overall, like, the chapter's fine. Like, it, it's not it's not bad. We don't have any fourth wall breaking. Like, there's intrigue. Like, we have actual intelligent writing. But at the same time, I feel like it just doesn't fit in with the rest of the tone of the book. Um, mm-hmm. So... We're going to say two jewels on the Tisrock's robe out of five. Okay. Which are still worth twice as much as everything that the Narnian delegation brought with them to, to yeah. Toshbon. So. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. Yeah, no, I think I've expressed a lot of my feelings about the chapter and kind of the ideas that are presented in it here and there. I give it the Splendor Highline. I mean, I think that it's it's not a bad chapter, and I definitely think that it it, it for me... As the kind of character that Erebus is as an engagement point for an audience, this is a really powerful engagement point. And so I disagree with you uh, about the disconnection from the story. I feel like this is a strong engagement point for an audience, and I like it. So I give it a higher rating than you do. Ha 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 ha. Ha ha. Okay. <laughs> um, whoa. Um, anyway, Kristen, you want to you take us out? No, go ahead. Okay. 
Um, so in the meantime... Uh, in the if, meantime for what? Until our next episode. Until our next episode? What's our next episode about? Our next episode is chapter nine. Across the desert. Across the desert. It's the, you know, they're going to take... Do, 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 do. They're going to take the one-day journey across the desert, and nothing will befall them or happen to them at all. Nothing. Um, until then, if you want to talk to us, you can get at us at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You can tweet at us, Chronically Pod on Twitter, or you can email chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. With Sound your... less bored. I was just, I was trying to do a flow. <laughs> I was doing a flow. You're doing a flow. Um, you can... You can get at us. <laughs> you, can, you can email us. Chronically Podcast on Facebook. You can Instagram. email us at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com with your fan art of uh, the view no, um, view of Rabidash's feet from underneath the divan. Okay. Okay. Like his twitching toes as he tries not to kick uh, the, the vizier in the butt. <laughs> like very specific fan art requests. Uh, but... Yeah, thank you for listening, and until a week from now... Do not drug your maid. And don't forget to wipe your sword, man. Don't ever, ever, ever trust Humnus. Uh, <laughs> Thanks. The Freudian you false babbler, and I'm an old jade. Yep. Hi, Joe. Um. <laughs> no, 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 no. We're a... not doing this. No, it was a joke. Stop it. Um, how do so... we get from the Crusades to this? <laughs> like, golly gee, how do we get this deep already? Let's call it France. Let's see. <laughs> sure, let's call it France so we don't offend anybody. Um, <laughs> are Canadians a myth? Are Canadians a myth? Like, this is what I need to know, Chris. I need to know. Are Canadians real? I've been to Canada, I think. Being constrained by the violence of my love and the imp impetu... And the impetuosity of youth. Being constrained by the violence of my love and the impetuosity impetuosity of youth. But is that before or after it's arrived in the Narnian port? At Caraparavel? Yeah, Caraparavel. Uh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the ship is the ship. Well, eat is eat. <laughs>